Now take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. Today, depending on how you look at it, we are either starting a new series through a new book or we're continuing a previous series looking at both of these letters from Paul to the Thessalonians. Uh, And uh, you can find our reading today on page 989 of the Cart Bibles, if you picked one up on the way in. Today we're going to be reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Now for all of us, whether you are new to Redeemer Church or not, it's been a while since we began our series through these letters. And so I want to share just a few pieces of information. It might be helpful for you to tuck away as we look Uh, At this letter today, something to know about Thessalonians. The most important thing to know about the city of Thessalonica, where this church was, is that it was a very important city. It was one of the prominent cities in the Roman Empire. It was the major city, in fact, the capital city of the ancient Roman province of Macedonia. It sat on the most important east-west trade route in the Roman uh, Roman world, and it also sat on one of the most important Uh, ports in the Aegean Sea. And so it was this enormous metropolitan, cosmopolitan city where you could find any delight or any debauchery that you could possibly imagine in Thessalonica. And so this is a church awash in a culture that was probably very much like ours. Uh, This is one of the earliest letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament probably written about A.D. 51, within 20 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this is uh, very early days for doctrine, uh, and that means that many of the very high Christological statements that Paul makes in these letters are, again, very, very important showing that they didn't uh, develop over time and over centuries and as a myth grew about this Jesus Christ. Twenty years after the resurrection of Jesus, we have already the one, as Paul says, uh, is right alongside God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is uh, something that we need to be aware of. And then as we orient ourselves to this letter of 2 Thessalonians, we'll find as we go through that it seems there are three main reasons that Paul wrote this letter. The first reason is to encourage the believers who are facing persecution there. We'll find that in the rest of chapter 1. In chapter 2, to correct some false teaching about the coming day of the Lord. And then in chapter 3, to deal with those in the church who refused to work. Those are some of the main emphases that we'll find. But today, we're just beginning to look at 2 Thessalonians, reading verses 1 through 4. So with a little bit of that introduction In the back of our minds, let's turn to the Lord in prayer, and then we will turn to his word together. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. You sent your spirit to inspire godly men of old to to draw them along, to write your words after you so that we could hear these things and believe in what they teach us. We pray that as we read your word together, not only today, but every day, uh, that we would see more of our Savior, that we would know more of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would grow in faith toward him and love toward your people. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would do this for your name's sake. Amen. We hear now God's word as we find it in the letter of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, 
grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Well, those of you who are old enough to remember, it wasn't very long ago, but you will remember that in the early 1990s, American evangelicalism was taken by storm. Uh, it was Donald McGavran's book, Understanding Church Growth, that entered its third printing, and thereabouts marked the zenith of what we now know as the church growth movement. The church growth movement defined a whole generation of churches and pastors, largely, uh, who were looking for and hungry for some new way to get new people to hear the old message of the gospel. There's no disputing the fact that the church growth movement came about out of good intentions. Don McGavern himself wrote that only where Christians, constrained by love, tell others the good news of the Savior, does the church spread and increase. He encouraged the multiplication of what he called churches nourished on the Bible and full of the Holy Spirit. Don McGavern wrote about the need for holiness. He wrote about faithfulness to God in our ministries. There were good intentions. But you know what often happens with good intentions. And so the church growth movement attracted the copycats. It attracted the pragmatists who wanted growth at all costs and growth without any of the faithfulness that was supposed to come along with it. So the church growth movement gave rise to the age of the American megachurch. It gave rise to what we now also know as the seeker-sensitive model that was more concerned with speaking a cultural word of pandering to feelings than really communicating the truth of the gospel. The church growth movement also got shoehorned into small rural churches that abandoned traditional forms of worship, thinking that if they only had new songs, if they only had new programs, if they only had new ministry initiatives, people were bound to show up to their dying churches. 30 years on, the church growth movement has, in most circles, been tried and found wanting. It has largely, though not completely, been abandoned. It's been abandoned uh, because people have realized that sociological insights and, and business principles do not produce churches that are devoted to Lord from the inside out. And so, in a way, pragmatism gains the upper hand again. What I mean by that is that the church growth movement did not die because American Christians found a better way. The church growth movement died because it couldn't produce what it promised. Well, in our verses today, short though they may be, uh, Paul presents us with a better way. You notice that in these verses, Paul and his companions are praising the Lord for genuine church growth. 
Not just growth in the numbers, not merely the multiplication of programs. They are talking about faithfulness and fruitfulness. Paul's talking here about growing faith, he says, and increasing love and steadfastness in the face of afflictions. That's what a healthy church should look like. That's how true growth ought to be measured. And as we hear Paul and his companions praising the Lord for these things, we also find where these things actually come from. There are three truths, three lessons that I hope that we'll take away from this passage today. It's not everything we could say about these verses, but three things I hope you'll see. The first is that everything good in the church comes from God. Everything good in the church comes from God. Now this, I think, points to one of the first cracks in the foundation of the modern church movement. Don McGavern wrote that the church uh, growth movement, or church growth, is influenced by what he called three sets of factors. Three variables that can be changed uh, that either hinder or help the expansion of Christian ministry. He identified the first set of factors as what he called contextual factors. Uh, that is uh, political or sociological or, or cultural realities that affect how quickly the, the gospel spreads in a given place or time. The second set of factors he called institutional factors. Uh, those are denominational, organizational structures that he said could help or hinder churches. Then the third set of factors, finally, he called spiritual factors. And here, under this one-third umbrella, he included the work of the Holy Spirit of God, who he said often works in non-traditional ways. I do not intend to spend all of our time picking on Don McGavern today. This is the last thing I will say about him. But I want you to notice that something dangerous creeps into our understanding of the church if we take the work of God and make it precisely one-third of what affects the health of a local congregation. If the work of the Holy Spirit is one set of factors among many that we can manipulate or receive that leads to a growing church, then it means that we have to come up with the other factors ourselves. And so in that way, a healthy, growing church becomes a matter of research. It becomes a matter of strategy. It becomes a matter of planning the yearly ministry calendar so that we can align ourselves to be good helpers of the Lord. And if we do so, we can be the ones who clear the way to receive something great from God. But if we miscalculate, we might miss out. In other words, it's another version of the same old lie that God helps churches who help themselves. That is not the New Testament model. The New Testament scriptures teach us that God's grace is not one factor among many, but rather that everything good in the church comes from God. How do we know that? We'll read verses 1 and 2 again. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you, he says, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just the opening introduction. It's the sort of thing that we're tempted to skip over to get to the meat of the letter, but do not miss the deep theology buried in those words. What is it that is significant about the church in Thessalonica? From where do they derive any grace or goodness that shows up in their midst? It is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the sole and operative source of our life and salvation as God's people. 
This and this alone is what sets the church apart as the church. It is what makes the church different from every other human assembly and group and social club that you can find anywhere else in the world. And this is drawn out by understanding the word that Paul uses for the church here. You may be aware, this is again one of those Greek words that you already know. You may be aware that the Greek behind the word church is ekklesia. And you may know that Greek word because some well-meaning pastor, and it was probably me, told you at some time what that word came to mean as Christians applied it to their gatherings. The language, the root meaning of the word ekklesia, comes from the language of calling. It is those who are called out, or it is those who are called together. That's what it means. And and as that word was applied to Christians, it became associated with the fact that it was the Lord who called his people out to be different from the world. Take a look down in verse 11. Paul says, We always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. The word calling is klesis, from which we get the word ekklesia. It means God's called out ones. And because of the way that Christians began to use this word to speak about themselves, that is the significance that it took on. But probably at this time, very early on, 20 years after the resurrection, it didn't quite mean that much yet. In fact, there were lots of ecclesias in the ancient world. It was simply a congregation. It was an assembly of people gathered together for any number of various reasons. There were all sorts of ecclesias in the ancient Greek-speaking world. There were political ecclesias. There were fraternal ecclesias. There were trade guilds and social clubs. There were ecclesias of every stripe and color in the Greek-speaking word. And it all means that when Paul calls this church the ecclesia of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he's telling them what they have in common with everybody else, and he's telling them what makes them different. What they have in common is that they're a bunch of people gathered together for some common purpose. But what makes them different is who they are connected to. What makes them unique is who they are in. What makes the church the church is the spiritual bond that we have with the God who made us. This connection that we have to the living God who redeems his people and makes them his own family of faith. Of course, that is also a staggeringly high statement of the divinity of Jesus Christ as well. You notice uh, Paul speaks of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ without skipping a beat. In fact, they're they're governed by the same same, uh, word in the Greek so that they're together uh, practically in a single breath. And this is what Jesus said when he spoke to his disciples in the upper room. He said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. You hear that? If we love Jesus, the father loves us and they make their home with us so we are in them. We are the church in God the father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so no matter the cultural factors, or the political realities, or the institutional structures that show up in a given church on a given Sunday, this is always the truth that separates God's people from every other group in the world. It is that our life is counted in connection with our Savior. You have died, Paul writes to the Colossians, and your life is hidden with God in Christ. You are the church 
in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is from him that every good thing comes to God's people. So, verse 2, grace to you, says Paul, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the source of all of our good. Grace, of course, is always the language in Scripture of grace undeserved. It's always the language of God's condescension, his mercy to those who don't deserve his mercy, to people uh, who are not predisposed or prepared to find his blessing. The God of grace in the Bible is the God who called Saul of Tarsus, who knocked him to the ground in a blinding flash and called him, who was the persecutor of the church, to become the planter of the church. The God of grace in the Bible is the God who appeared to Gideon, Not in his strength, but in the wine press, you remember. Treading out the grapes in fear of the other nations. The God of grace is the God who spoke to Abram. Not quite when he was in the promised land, but when he was still wandering around the desert with his family of idolaters. The God of grace in the Bible is the God who shows up in the garden at the very first sign of rebellion against him. Ultimately, the God of grace is the God who sends his son. He's the God who raised Christ Jesus to give life to people dead in their sins and their trespasses. He's the Lord who makes his gospel message the power of salvation, no matter what the cultural powers of the day might think about it. As we read today in 1 Corinthians, even if the powers of the world think that it's folly and weakness, God still does his work through his word. Why? Because he's gracious. Not because we deserve it, not because we've researched the best way to approach it, because he does what he wants to do with his mercy. God of grace is not beholden to whether or not we're deserving or prepared for his blessing. He gives grace to those he chooses. Paul also speaks of peace. It reminds us that God is the one who gives a wholeness that we can't get for ourselves. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know how unique this is. Just a a few verses after Jesus spoke in the upper room about the Father and the Son making their home with God's people, he went on to say, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. How is it that the world gives peace? Or how is it that the world even counts peace to begin with? Well, the world counts peace as an absence of conflict. You are at peace in the world if there's nothing troubling you. There's nothing bothering you. If your life's pretty well put together and reasonably structured, you you can claim to be at peace. But Christ gives his peace even in the midst of our struggles, even in the midst of our afflictions and conflicts. He gives us peace with the Father that transcends the difficulties and sufferings and sin that we face in this life. That's why in Philippians chapter 4, Paul called it the peace of God that surpasses understanding. It's a peace that those who have not experienced it look at and go, that doesn't make any rational sense at all. You Christians walking around so so joyful, maybe not happy all the time, but this sort of abiding peace that you say everything's okay. Not just that you're optimistic, but that you've got something else that makes no sense to me. Paul says it's the peace of God and it surpasses understanding for the rationalistic person who's never experienced it. 
And Jesus says he gives that peace to his people. So it's not surprising in in verses 1 and 2 and then in verses 3 and 4, Paul moves immediately from this prayer for the church to a discussion of steadfastness under trial. Do you notice that? This is the peace that he's talking about. Our peace with God is a settled relationship with him. It's reconciliation through the blood of Jesus. It is fellowship with God the Father. It is peace with God through which we have access to his throne of grace by prayer. And because of this peace, we have an anchor for our souls, even while our our afflictions are raging. That kind of peace, Paul tells us, comes not from our strategies, not from our programs, not from our research. It comes as a gift from the only God who can give it. And so peace and grace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're gifts that remind us of a larger truth, that everything good in the church comes from God. That leads us to the second lesson of this passage. That is that when we see God's goodness, we should praise him. Very simply, when we see God's goodness, we should praise him. Verse 3 Paul says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for another is increasing. Don't get hung up on that language of obligation. Some people read verse 3, and it feels like Paul's relationship with the church must be awfully sterile, must be awfully law-driven if he talks about, well, you know, we, we have to give thanks for you. Because who wants somebody praying for them and giving thanks for them just because they feel obligated? But that misses the point of what Paul is saying, of course. There are good obligations. There are joyful obligations, even though they are obligations God gives to us. Parents, you are obligated to teach the gospel to your children. You are called by the Lord to raise them up and teach them the faith. It doesn't mean that it's drudgery. In fact, sometimes it's downright joyful. But you're obligated to do it because that's your covenant relationship. Husbands, you are called, you are duty-bound to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wives, you are commanded to submit yourself to your husband. And there is a happiness in the home when we submit ourselves to the covenant obligations that God lays upon us. Don't get thrown off by this language of obligation. It's okay. It's the same with other Christian relationships. So it is with Paul's thanksgiving. He is obligated, but he's not obligated to the church. He's obligated to the Lord. It is right. It is fitting. It is proper when we see God doing good things to turn and praise his name. Psalm 92, verses 1 and 4. It says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. That's where Paul's coming from. The work of God in the church has made him glad, and he knows the only proper response. When we see God's goodness, we should praise him. And so you notice he doesn't congratulate the believers. He doesn't say, you know, you folks are doing really well. Way to go, pat on the back for you. No, he says, we thank the Lord for what's happening in your lives. We thank him for your growing faith. We thank him for your increasing love. 
We don't have to spend a whole lot of time on those two elements because we saw a lot of it in 1 Thessalonians. Many ways this is a follow-up, but you need to notice uh, at the bare minimum that what Paul is thanking the Lord for is two things. He's thanking the Lord for their loyalty to God, and he's thanking the Lord for their dedication to one another. Faith, of course, is our loyalty to God. Faith is a conviction that Christians have that God can be trusted. In Scripture, you understand the way that faith is often contrasted with sight, so that we're presented with two opposite ways of moving through the world where God has placed us. We can either trust in the things that we can see with our eyes, or we can trust in the things that God has spoken by his word, even if we can't lay eyes on them yet. Either we walk by faith, or we walk by sight. Faith, says Hebrews, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And Paul is saying that in Thessalonica, the things that are unseen are becoming clearer and clearer. Their faith is increasing. So too their love. And in this context, love is the bond of communion that believers share one with another. It's a spiritual concern that one Christian has for another Christian. The love that Paul is thankful for, you notice he says, is the love of each one, every one of you for one another, and that is increasing. You know, in the Roman world, in the first century, faith in Jesus was an increasingly uncomfortable thing. You can read Acts chapter 17, where we find the the founding of the church in Thessalonica. We can find that the persecution of that church began almost immediately after the conversion of the first believers there. In very real ways, as they, uh, they lived in a world that was antagonistic toward their faith, in very real ways, the Christian there had to be committed to one another. They had to give of themselves to one another to see their small church survive. They had to be concerned with the faith of of others outside their own little life and their family and their individual Christianity. And the bond that makes one Christian concerned for the faith and well-being of another is what Paul calls love. He says a love that was increasing. So far, so good. Paul saw the Lord producing faith and producing love in Thessalonica, and he did what he ought to do. He gave credit where it was due. That's a good thing. When we see God's goodness, we should praise him. But do you realize, as you read verse 3, that not only is Paul giving thanks to the Lord for a growing church, but do you realize that by his thanksgiving, he's causing the church to grow more? You see that? Think about it. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. And love is the concern that one believer has For another. And here is Paul, at this time in Corinth, some 200 miles south, doing his own thing, faced with the challenge of raising up a church where there had not been a church before. And here are these believers up in Thessalonica, this metropolitan city, confronted with their own challenges. And what is Paul doing but sending his fellow workers and his laborers in the gospel back to check on them and to take a word of encouragement to them? There's a connection there between them, and as Paul sends this letter of encouragement to them, what is he doing? He's speaking to them about the grace of God that is as yet unseen. Right? Other people would have looked at what was happening in the church in Thessalonica and come away with any number of external rationalities for what was happening there. 
Some would have looked and said, you know, there must be some outward identifiable cultural connection for these people that makes them so concerned for one another. Others probably said, you know, I bet they're pretty gullible. I bet Paul manipulated them. I bet if we look at the ones who are most believing among them, we can find out why they're so committed to these things, why their faith is holding on, even though persecution is knocking at their doorstep. Others would have looked at Paul and said, I bet if we can replicate his institutional structures, we can replicate his ministerial success. We can do the same thing if we get all the externals right in line. And Paul is saying, no, it's a grace that you can't see at work. Paul has a conviction in things not seen, and he writes to this church to say, you should have a conviction in things not seen. And how does he increase their conviction in things not seen? He praises the Lord for this stuff. He speaks about the God who is at work. He pulls back the curtains on what's really happening in the church. The single and sole factor of all of our life and faith, and all the goodness that comes to us, Paul says, when we see you increasing in faith and love, we're not so proud of you as we are proud of the Lord. We'll get to that language of boasting in a minute. He's turning to them, and he's saying that it's not about all that other stuff. The growth of the church comes from the Lord who's at work. It's God's hidden grace and peace that makes your faith grow and your love increase. And as he shares with them his thanksgiving, he's encouraging them to grow even more in the God who's at work in them. It brings us to the last truth that I hope you take from this passage. And that is that God uses the praises of his people to grow his church. God uses the praises of his people to grow his church. That's the secret. If you want to know where church growth comes from, if you want to know what faithfulness looks like, it looks like God's people gathering together to speak to one another about the good things that he has done. We could say it in a word. Church growth comes from worship. Sometimes worship in the local church leads to numerical growth. Sometimes visitors come in and they gather and they buy big buildings and they fill a sanctuary. Sometimes that happens, though it's not necessary. Sometimes the church grows in cultural influence. Sometimes worship spills over into the multiplication of small group ministries and and lots of initiatives for all the different demographics represented in the congregation. Sometimes those things happen as well. Sometimes they don't. But always, when the church gathers for worship, God's people grow in faith and love. So here's how Paul puts it in verse 4. He says, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, that is the part that sounds strange. Paul's proud of the Lord, of course, but here he says he's boasting of the church. He sounds like some proud father who's introducing his favorite child to the rest of the world. I don't have any favorites, of course. I remind my children of that all the time but they know who they are. Um, It sounds strange, right? We're boasting in you until you realize that what Paul is proud of is not the good things that the Thessalonians are doing, so much as he's proud of what God is doing through them. Paul knows, of course, 
that we should not boast in human achievements. Remember the last word that we read in our reading from 1 Corinthians today. Paul is aware of the words of Jeremiah. He quoted them to others. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so when he brags about their steadfastness and their faith in verse 4, we need to understand it as really the public counterpart to his private thanksgiving in verse 3. Here's how John Stott puts it. He says, thanking and boasting are two sides of the same coin. When we talk to God, we thank him for his grace. And when we talk to people, we boast of his grace. We speak well of what God is doing, even if it means we speak well of what God is doing among his people. Either way, it amounts to the same thing. Sometimes we praise God privately. Sometimes we praise him publicly. And when we do, the Lord is pleased to use our praise to grow his people. Here we have to remember what Paul wrote in his first letter. Because it's so very similar to what he says about their suffering in verse 4. Turn back with me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Read again verses 6 and 7. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 and 7, Paul says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith, your joy in the Holy Spirit, your steadfastness, even under trial and affliction, has become, he says, an example to other believers. Other people are hearing about it. It becomes a challenge to them, in a sense. It becomes a a visual aid of what faith ought to look like. It becomes not so much something to shoot for, but something to hold on to. As we go through this life, and whether we face afflictions like they faced afflictions, or we face afflictions like you face afflictions, whatever they might be, as we go through this life, we often look at ourselves and wonder, what should faith look like in this situation? How should it show up? How will I know if I'm growing in the Lord? And Paul says, God gives grace to one church to be an example for another. So that as God's people all get together and start to talk about the good things that he's doing, as we worship together, as we share together in rehearsing God's goodness, we grow up together because we recognize that's what it looks like. That's what God's work should be doing in my life. That's how he's leading me. This is how he can grow me. And so the praise of God's people becomes a spur to greater faithfulness as together we learn how much God can be trusted. I want to ask you, haven't you experienced that in the church? Don't you have some fellow Christian in your life whose faith exceeds your own in just the right ways, that shows you what the Lord is able to do in those who trust Him? Don't you have some fellow believer that you know in the church that for whatever reason, in God's sovereign plan, that fellow believer has suffered far more than you have in your life, physically or emotionally or relationally or whatever it might be. Other believers that have gone before you in affliction, and by God's grace, you've seen that their faith has come out standing on the other side. And isn't it true that that other Christian is an example to you 
Not of what you can become, but what, of what God is capable of. Isn't that person, she or he, a living proof that the God who promises, whose promises you sometimes struggle to hold on to is actually at work? Don't you know some other Christian whose faith and love makes the gospel more believable when you see it at work in them? Don't you know some other believer who is so clearly filled with an otherwise unexplainable joy of the Lord that you are certain that Jesus lived and died and was raised again to save them from their sins, even if sometimes you struggle with the assurance that he's done that for you too? That's why we worship together. Because the Lord knows that in our weakness, we need to be in regular contact with people like that. Not superhuman Christians, just sinners, just like you. Other examples, other, uh, other visual aids to our faith. People who help us to realize what the grace of God is capable of. That's why we worship together. That's why we come to this place Sunday after Sunday and we read and we confess and we pray and we sing and we hear God's word and we come to his table as a family together so that we gathered in this place can look across the aisles and the seats and we can say the Lord has saved her and he saved him and those people back there and if he can do that, what could he do for me? This is why we worship together. To remind ourselves that everything good in the church comes from God. To encourage us that when we see God's goodness, we ought to praise him. And finally, to know that God uses the praises of his people to grow his church. Let's pray together. O oh Lord and gracious God, we thank you for the work that you do in your children. We thank you for salvation that uh, we sometimes in our own lives struggle to see, but we can see it more clearly in others. We thank you that your same Holy Spirit is at work in all those who trust you and love you. We pray that your people would be an encouragement to one another. Far more, Lord, that your work in your people would be an encouragement to us, and we would return all praise and glory and honor to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.